Hello and welcome to the Not All Men podcast. This is the podcast where we look to explore and quash the Not All Men hashtag. Through real life and vulnerable conversations, we look to create a pathway for us men to do better for the world around us, but also for our own happiness as well. It would never be a podcast that I was leading if there was not a discussion on eating disorders. It is something that I myself have struggled with, particularly in my early 20s, and then it's now my line of work. And so I have drawn on the expertise of Harriet Fru today, who is better known as the eating disorder therapist on Instagram, who through her work in the NHS and her own private clinic, as well as being the host of the Eating Disorder Therapist podcast, continues to spread some amazing, amazing messaging about eating disorders. So today, expect to hear about eating disorders in a different light. Expect to hear about how we can create a greater connection with our emotions as men and the first steps that we can take in order to achieve that. Expect to hear why support network, safe environments are the biggest predictor of recovery within an eating disorder. And then as well as that, how if we as men know someone, whether that's a friend or our partner who is currently going through an eating disorder, how we can best support them. So if you do enjoy this episode, then I'd be so, so grateful if you could share it on whatever social media platform that you use and as well as, not either, as well as give it a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. This is a really, really remarkable conversation that I hope will help people because food is something that is underreported in the amount of people who currently struggle with it. And so welcome to Not All Men. Greetings, welcome back. Today is a topic that is very, very close to my heart. A, from my own kind of personal journey of, of kind of, I suppose, self-discovery, but also within my own field of work. And so I am so, so grateful to be joined by Harriet Fru, who is more well-known as the eating disorder therapist on Instagram, who puts out some incredible content, um, some things that I've shared over and over and over again. And so I'm so, so grateful for you to be joining me here today, Harriet. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for inviting me, Callum. Um, it's great to be here. One of the things that I think is fascinating for my own kind of curiosity, particularly as I've explored my own kind of relationship with food and the work that I do is I'd love to start with you. And so I would love to ask, how's your relationship with food as a professional? And then also how it's evolved over time. So today, I would say that I have a healthy relationship with food. Um, I love food. I eat all foods. I don't like to be restricted in any way. Um, I see food as something that is very much about sharing and connection and being creative 
and being with others and having fun and tasting all kinds of delicious sort of tastes and textures. So yeah, for me today, um, food is something that's very much an enjoyable and pleasurable part of life. And as a young girl, I think my relationship with food then was very similar to as it is now. But um, I kind of went a bit off track in my teens and suffered from bulimia nervosa. And from between the ages of 17 and sort of my mid-20s. So I had a period then of having a very destructive relationship with food, you know, being very restrictive and falling into cycles of binging and purging. And I see my main point of recovery as sort of when I stopped purging in my mid-20s. But I guess it has been a gradual journey back to a full and flourishing healthy relationship with food because I think as you may well know when you've had an eating disorder you kind Mm. of can't just jump straight back to the other side of the river where you were innocently before it's a bit of a journey isn't it and it takes steps and um, it's a bit of a messy imperfect road but it's absolutely possible. I think that that's really important to acknowledge that that I would kind of frame food in a similar or using similar semantics of, of connection and, and creativity. And if you ask me today how my relationship with food is, I would say it's fantastic and eclectic. However, I'm also very mindful of certain elements of my past and still kind of consciously make decisions to almost as a, a statement of, of pride to say that, no, Um, so one of the things that I have, um, is that I will always have, um, five boxes of cereal in the cupboard. It's kind of a, it's a, it used to be a trigger food. It used to consume crunchy nut by the Pyrex bowl. So therefore I'm like, no, I've earned the fact that I have this autonomy and freedom around food choices and things like that. And so I will, but that is almost like a means of, from one hand is protecting my relationship with food through exposure, but then also celebrating it. And so it kind of, it's this kind of duality that it's always a, a kind of a work in progress and, and evolving. Can I ask what the, um, what was the point then that allowed you to acknowledge to then reach out for your own personal support? Well, to be honest with you, I mean, back in the day, you know, I'm quite old, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> there wasn't a lot of help available. So I did try actually and to seek help quite early on in my recovery, but there just wasn't a lot of help available. I mean, I think, um, in, you know, in the UK, eating disorder support and services have evolved massively in the last 10, 15 years. You know, even though still I know we're kind of quite under-resourced. Um, mm. So I did try and sort of seek help quite early on. But for me, from even when I was first diagnosed with the eating disorder, you know, I guess self-diagnosed, sure. I, I don't even know why I had this kind of belief, but I really knew that this wasn't going to be something that I lived with for the rest of my life. I really felt this was like a temporary, I kind of gone off the rails and that I was going to recover. And I think having that mindset, and I don't know kind of why I had that because of just something, it's almost something greater than me internally almost, Mm. but having that kind of mindset helped me to keep pursuing recovery. So I met many, many dead ends, I guess. Um, But I was even from almost the very early days when I had the eating disorder, I was 
trying to get out of it, even though I was kind of failing or falling down many times. Um, so, yeah, I don't answer your question, but no, it, wasn't, it wasn't like a kind of clear cut, right, today's the day. It was more of a like messy, evolving, ongoing process. And I relate so much to that. But then, but from my point of view, I really struggled from a, a sense of that I knew it was something that I had to engage in. But if we viewed the process of recovery in inverted commas as almost like a, the analogy that I use is running around a 400 meter athletics track and I would essentially step in dog poo is the analogy that I would use on the way around. And there'd be some times where um, uh, I would, wouldn't be able to comprehend the kind of the messiness of the process, the imperfection and, and weak I in particular. And I think this is maybe a human thing, but maybe also a male thing kind of really wanted this objective outcome, um, process that was like, okay, what are my outcomes? What do I have to do? What are the clear cut steps? And, there and really struggled with that side i i feel my way out of it as opposed to, to kind of taking these steps and and things like that and i'll be honest that parts of my own process i almost some not I gave up is not because i'm here now but it felt like i was just like oh effort type thing i'm can't i'm not doing this um or it, I'd be like, oh no, I'm okay, but I'd go back to dieting. And so you have that clear cut nature. And so I'd remove myself from that process because I would just not reflect. It was like, oh, I'm back at square one. So particularly as a, a professional now, and then maybe through vicariously through your own experiences, what's your, how do you deal with that messiness and, and that kind of desire for more outcome um, quite step-by-step -step process that really doesn't exist yeah I mean I think it's a great question isn't it and I think many people with eating disorders um, and maybe it's sort of amplified in males compared to females I don't know but I, I just think of many of my female clients as well have really that kind of black and white thinking and really mm. want like a step-by-step -step clear process where um, they're feeling in control I guess mm. And I think that that's the really hard thing, isn't it? It's kind of letting go or being prepared to gradually let go a bit of some of the old control because of we're approaching recovery from an eating disorder with like willpower and kind of dogged rules and stuff mm. is not going to work. And I think often when we're approaching it from that place, we can be, you know, it can be under the kind of veil of still dieting or being overly restrictive. So the kind of being good um you know but actually you know it's not really working and we're very quickly then fall back into binge purge cycles etc and then that feels really messy and then you feel even more oh well I've got to become even more controlled so I guess it's it's baby steps isn't it of kind of letting go and being a bit more imperfect and being able to start to manage your thinking in a slightly different way where you can be a bit more compassionate with yourself where you can view things more rationally, where you don't see like one binge as the absolute failure that has written off your whole recovery journey. Yeah. Well, the um, idea of then compassion is really 
challenging at times, or this is what I um, I found. And I'd love to hear your take on this because one of the challenges that I see and I felt is this idea of compassion often alludes to some form of self-acceptance. The fact that that there has to be, and I've learned this, that there has to be some form of acceptance of who we are in, in the here and now. But you also have this dynamic where you people are trying to strive for more. They're trying to, whether that's objectively of causing change to their body or whether that's in search of achieving, maybe even, I mean, if we talk in a very like phys, um, fitness industry kind of sense, they're trying to achieve something physically. Um, but and then even just they're trying to achieve or accomplish and and to make meet these needs of of some form of external validation, but it's always more, more, more. And so how do you manage that sense of striving for more, but then having that foundation of self-acceptance? again a great question I mean I think you can have both like I think a lot of people when they first hear about self-compassion think that oh this means like giving up on my goals I'm just going to sit on the sofa I'm, I'm never going to be achieving anything you know again I think if, you know if you're coming at it again perhaps from a slightly black and white perspective you might think well if I'm self-compassionate I'm going to have to write off my striving side but I mean, I often say to my clients, you know, if you were teaching a young child, you know, your child to ride a bike, when they fall off, you are really encouraging and supportive and kind and validating and you encourage them to get back on, which could be the striving to keep pursuing the goal. But you do it with a lot of warmth and acceptance of where they're at. So that's sometimes I find a kind of helpful way to view it in a way like, you know, you're still pursuing your end goal, but you're doing it being your like supportive encourager rather than like saying, oh, my goodness, you've fallen off the bike. Now you failed. Don't get back on the bike again, which is often I think how the if you're very into striving, you can be very, very critical. Mm. And um, and actually that then lowers your motivation because if you feel like a failure. You can feel like what's the point and then procrastinate achieving your goals. So that's one way I quite like to view it. The um, I relate to some of that because one of the things that I kind of struggled with was the idea of engaging in certain things, activities, practices that I've spoken about before on here, whether it's really challenging myself physically and and engaging in all of these kind of fitness challenges if you like as well as just then trying to just uphold a training lifestyle and um and just to uh, trying to accomplish the body the body in inverted commas that i want or so i perceived that i wanted and what my process I had to go through through my own process was to really evaluate whether these goals were actually my own, because a large part of what I was doing was trying to strive in a means of feeling some form of control 
or accomplishment to, and then when I felt some form of control or accomplishment, I felt enough and worthy and, and, and it came from a, a sense of a complete lack of self-worth. And so I'd love to hear about the kind of the, uh, one of the things that I had to do was unpick my own goals to be like, is this actually what I want? And particularly when I had to then build goals off of a platform that had some form of relationship with adequacy, um, that was hard. And so I would love to hear if you've had any similar experiences, whether that's yourself or with your clients. Yeah, well, I think we do live in a world, don't we, where we can base so much of our worth on external validation and so easy to compare and social media and the media generally fuel all of that. I think what I try and get my clients to do and definitely something I've done myself is just to get very clear on your personal values and to think about, you know, the, the classic question when you're 90 and looking back on your life, you know, what is it that's going to have been really, really important? You know, what not what do other people think is important? What do you personally um, feel is really important to you? And I think that's just a very helpful question, isn't it? I mean, I think it's quite a hard question to answer sometimes. Create, you know, you have to do a bit of digging. Um, but, you know, I really like the book, The Five Regrets of the Dying, you know, mm. and when people look back on their lives, it's always like, I wish I'd lived a, a life that was more in line with my values. I wish I'd stayed more in touch with my friends. All those kind of things are often the things that really matter. And actually pursuing an aesthetic or something, it might be externally quite validating. We might get feedback from others, but often when we really get in line with our values and think about what's going to have really been important when we look back, then I think we can kind of realize, you know, maybe we don't have to chuck that goal completely out. We don't have to chuck the baby out with the bathwater, but maybe it's much lower down the list of priorities when we really think about what's important. So I think that's the thing that definitely helps me. And I think you have to work on that daily to stay quite grounded, you know, in your own lane, because of you will get knocked off that recovery road very easily. And people will give you their opinions. You can be, you know, as human beings, we can easily be seduced and flattered by what other people think is important. So I think it's um, daily work, really, to kind of connect with our values and to kind of regularly evaluate, you know, am I staying in my lane and living my life in the way that I want to? From your experience, why do we kind of get drawn into so much of the external validation? And, and do you have any experience of if there's a listener here kind of trying to apply these own their own reflections through their own experiences, where would you kind of ask them to start? Sure. Well, I guess it's just to normalize it. Like I think, you know, back in the day when we were like hunter gatherers and stuff, if we weren't accepted as part of the tribe, it could have meant death and being mm. outcast. So I guess that's where it's rooted, isn't it? We're kind of biologically primed to want to fit in, to be accepted. Um, I mean, I think, again, it's helpful to look at your childhood. You know, I think if you had a childhood where you were very supported to be yourself, 
where you had a lot of love and acceptance and encouragement and people didn't put their opinions too much onto you. You know, you, you've had a real gift there. So you might feel a bit less of a need to be externally validated. Because I think it's not just parents, is it? I think from very young, you know, um, you know, what goes on in our family, what goes on at school, how we got on with friends, if we were bullied, if we were ever rejected in a relationship, all these things can add kind of layers and impact our self-worth. And I think if you've had quite a lot of maybe knocks along the way, you can feel like, oh, I, I really want to fit in. You know, I want to be perfect. I want to look a certain way. I want people to like me. And then you can sort of twist yourself to be what you think the world wants you to be. So, um, and I think it's quite a seductive road to be led down. Yeah. And looking from, I mean, this is something that I relate to. Like I was rewarded as a child for being the athlete or for being, and that's how essentially I harness the sense of belonging. And what we have to recognize is, well, what do we, how do we build relationships as like, how do you and I build a relationship now? I don't say, oh, by the way, here's my athletic achievements. And um, and we do it through much more qualitative variables by making each other feel safe, seen, heard, acknowledged, celebrated, and, and all of these other kind of emotional needs. Um, and I think starting back there is, as you said, something really, really just to kind of have some acknowledgement of, of how we formulated our, our sense of belonging is amazing. Um, the sense of just out of curiosity, what's the ratio of, of kind of male and female clients that you generally have? Sure. I mean, I tend to see more females. Um, I think, yeah, maybe perhaps down to, down to my marketing, yeah, Maybe sure. I think as well that men still are underdiagnosed, undiagnosed with eating disorders. And it is, you know, perhaps more challenging for men to reach out for help. So, yeah. So, I mean, I, I've been speaking for my NHS work and my private work. Mm. I mean, I would almost say it's like 90% female. Wow. Do you notice in a, do you notice a difference in approach when dealing with a male versus a female as they step into recovery are there any generalized kind of statements or is it completely just everyone is their own individual um, or do men generally that come in have more difficulty articulating some of their emotions and all of these kind of things sure i mean i think again generalizing but men often come in for, to treatment more for you know maybe they're kind of got obsessive exercise kind of tendencies or it is more around fitness or obtaining like kind of muscular very lean physique whereas that does, does happen for women too but I still mm. think predominantly it's more the pursuit of thinness in women um, and that's slightly different for men you know I wouldn't say men generally are wanting the pursuit of thinness it's more about but it, again, it is like a kind of idealized physique, how they feel that they should be looking. Um, and I think in terms of talking about um, emotions, I mean, really interestingly, I think um, just sort of thinking about people I've assessed, males have assessed in the eating disorder clinic, perhaps even in the NHS in the last year. 
I would say that males who are sort of perhaps under 30 um, are actually pretty good at talking yeah. about their emotions. Really interesting. Um, you know, I think, you know, it's quite a kind of cutoff. And again, I'm, I'm really generalizing here. So yeah, if anyone's sure. over 30 and good at, with their emotions, you know, fully respect that. I think for men that are kind of a, a little bit older and have kind of been brought up in this kind of world of toxic masculinity where you don't show any of your sort of feminine side mm. you don't talk about your emotions you're very celebrated for being the provider and your social status um it's much harder to be able to sort of talk about feelings and maybe again as we were sort of talking earlier about people wanting a more perhaps black and white solution focused approach you know i think sometimes as well again i'm generalizing men might be looking a bit more for that and it might feel a bit sort of wishy-washy almost kind yeah. of like trying to engage more with the feeling side. I can, I can relate to that in the sense that, and I don't know whether it is because the men that I speak to under 30 who are there thus younger than me, almost because I might speak and use semantics like, connection and love and compassion that then it kind of normalizes it and i think then just generally through things like tiktok and all of these things it's probably in in those kind of things are, are really promoting a much more healthier narrative around emotion and thinking with some male or older clients who are then older than me one of the things that um we've kind of worked on is elements of injunctions where they have such a disconnect to feeling. And sometimes it can be such the most simplistic things that come out of our conversations that maybe occurred in, in younger life that then reinforce this disconnect. And I think that it is more apparent in, maybe the parents of that generation um thing even just things like um one client i can think of a lot of the uh, the the examples that came out of his childhood was his mum saying things like i'm i'm hungry now it's time for us to have lunch or i'm cold go and get go and get your coat and it's these kind of things where it's like, no, you feel what I feel. Your actions are based off of my feelings um, and things like that. And then not to mention the the, the narratives around man up and, and boys don't cry and, and things like that. And so it's reinforcing the, the ideas that eating disorders can be a, they're an emotional regulation um, there that's where we place our emphasis and so thinking okay where are the elements where i might have lost that connection and how can i bring that connection back and so what's the process then of because so i have a, i can think of what i'm thinking of one particular amazing male um who i know will be listening to this and he will um he won't mind me kind of using this example but one of the things that I've done with him is allow him to kind of connect with his physical sensations of his body. 
to do things like full body scans and to just take moments to just so we can kind of begin to understand what he's feeling to then create that. I'm not going to lie, it was quite poor in the beginning. And we will say, and he won't mind me saying that in the in the sense of where where are you feeling sensations and how would you rate them and, and all of these kind of things. And um, the semantics and language that he uses were quite almost naive and childlike and, and things like that. Um, what's your process of then reforming that or trying to articulate that connection and, and, and feeling and kind of then bringing it into to food or things that people can engage in? Sure. Well, I think firstly, it's just really giving yourself permission and acknowledgement to recognize that feelings are a valid thing to be engaging with. And I know that's maybe sounds an obvious thing to do, but I think if you're still thinking in your mind, oh, this feeling stuff, not really worth engaging with, you're going to, you're not really going to follow through with it. So I think it's really recognizing, anyway, I have permission to do this. This is a valuable thing to do. And if I'm not connecting with my feelings I'm almost like losing that internal barometer that can be really guiding me and helping me so I think just like enhancing your motivation to engage Hmm. I mean I think one of the helpful things I mean I think what you're talking about the body scan is a really helpful thing because I think often feeling our feelings in the body really really helpful isn't it to make that kind of body mind connection I think one of the main things as well is just allowing yourself time to reflect because often as well, we are busy, 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 doing, doing, doing all the time. It's a very effective way to, you know, like kind of keep striving, almost ignore our feelings, be shut off from our feelings, protected from our feelings. So you have to like allow a bit of space to connect with your feelings. And I guess that can be done in different ways. Like it can be done with the body scan. It can be done by going on a walk and not being plugged into something but allowing your mind to wander and lean like leaning into your feelings a bit more it can be through writing down and journaling it could be like speaking to a really good mate who's someone you really trust and accept and and where you kind of got you know someone who's going to like really help you explore things um could be even going to a therapist or a coach um you know, so I guess it's kind of multiple ways, but I think it's it's about allowing time, you know, and that sounds so simple, doesn't it? But mm. it's really quite hard to do that. Um, but I think what I found, you know, and I'm sure you have too, is actually when people start to allow themselves time to go inwards, to start to reconnect with their feelings, you know, to sort of be more aware, then you can start to relate that as well to the patterns of maybe what's going on with food. To say, for example, if someone's having a binge or something, that doesn't usually come out of nowhere. No. And of course, physical factors like being too restrictive may be having quite a powerful impact. But if you trace back what might have happened in that day, it could have been a difficult conversation, could have been something that happened at work that was upsetting, could have been something on social media that was triggering. So you know, you can start to make those connections once you're a bit more tuned in. And then I guess you can start to think a bit more about how you deal with those things, you know. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's a very simplified way, I guess, of trying to explain it a bit. No, that's that's um, that's absolutely fantastic. And one of the things that I have um, 
I've kind of faced that challenge with through my own journey is is almost understanding the impermanence of feelings. And I don't know whether this is a ma- a male thing and or whether this is again a, a human thing. Um, but I would is is trying to control in inverted commas, our emotions from a place of, I felt really good and motivated and this and, and energized when I was doing this. And so, and I'd be like, Oh, okay. I want to hold on to this feeling. And one of the, the most, the most liberating thing for me was just to understand, to just let go of these feelings, just they are. So even just like now, I feel a, a sense of, connection and peace and in this moment it's great and but i might end this conversation with you and it might be something far more stressful and it and that's okay because that will pass and and just allowing and embracing anything to come into our lives becomes really 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 important um one of the things that you said there as well which i loved was you spoke about leaning into friends and and support network as a whole i know that i could i've got two clients currently who they haven't even told their partner that we're working together and and things like that can you articulate because i've seen some amazing posts of yours about about the importance of support network the importance of connection and its role in in recovery sure i think eating disorders just thrive in sort of secrecy and shame I think it's very easy to sort of feel when you're in those horrible cycles to feel like you know I'm this kind of monster who's the only one doing this and then to feel so much shame and then to isolate yourself and obviously disconnect but I mean I know for myself and I'm sure for many others actually yeah having people in my life who I can be open and honest with about the messy, imperfect and vulnerable bits has been incredibly healing. And I think you don't need many people, you know, you haven't got to tell your whole Instagram following or you haven't got to tell everyone at work. You just need like one or two or three, if you're lucky, really people who you can be open with because of actually talking about things in a space where you feel accepted and heard when someone's not trying to judge you, just getting it out, the process that in itself is incredibly healing. So, you know, I just think it's it's a really important part of recovery to, if you're feeling, if you're listening to this and you're feeling you are very isolated, you know, it might be something to think about as we're moving into 2022 to, you know, think about where you could make some of those connections because there are a lot of people out there who are going through very similar things. Again, it's a part of compassion therapy realizing our shared humanity you know what you're going through you are not alone other human beings are going through it right now or will have gone through it before you know talking about it is such a helpful thing to do it's really hard though and we'll 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 echo echo those things but from my own personal experience the one of the greatest things was kind of the first time that i lent into my own family and and the platform that that then formed for uh, a, a much safer, a greater depth to our relationship, because I would 
present and I've spoken about this on the podcast before where I felt as if I had to show up as perfect as in my family environment and that left me feeling quite almost like an outsider because they would just be like oh Callum's okay he doesn't he's just off living his life type thing and all of a sudden they saw me for my own kind of humanity and the the kind of the relationship then becomes equal in certainly in equity and and like i say vulnerability is the is the foundation of of any form of of kind of connection there the the things that i have struggled with as well and i know that some clients um that i've worked with historically have struggled with is that they feel because there is a nature of another person maybe involved in this kind of dynamic that creates more uncertainty. And so leaning in, we don't have control how over the other person in the relationship that we might be leaning into. And so this uncertainty is can sometimes be paralyzing i know i felt that i I, to be honest in other areas of my life i might still kind of manage that and so uh, particularly in 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 forming a, a social support system and then acknowledging that I don't have control over this person, how this person reacts. And, and this can be the closest of people sometimes, the family, spouse, et cetera. How would you help someone overcome that uncertainty? Well, I think often the thought of sharing is much worse than the doing it. You know, I think generally with our anxious thoughts, we can really catastrophize and think about the worst case scenario and expect to be rejected and all of those things. So I think it's worth holding that in mind. You know, you're probably thinking it's going to be a lot worse than it is. You know, I'd also say to people as well is, you know, you've probably got to be a little bit discerning about who you do speak to. Like from, from my experience, I wasn't really able to speak to my family because there's a lot of where the, I guess the roots of the problem were. And I needed to find support elsewhere. So, you know, I think it, it doesn't always have to be who you think it should be, you know, because it would be lovely sometimes if it could be your nearest and dearest. But with the best one in the world, maybe if they don't understand eating disorders, if they've got an awful lot going on themselves, you know, if they're just not in, if they haven't done much psychological work or have much understanding with the best one in the world, they might love you, but they may not be the best person to support you. So I think, again, it's an acceptance of that. Um, And then I think as well, like you don't, when we're trying to make connections and be more vulnerable, you don't have to say everything in one go. (laughs) You know, often how relationships are built is kind of, you know, I dip my toe in the water a bit with my vulnerability and then you dip your toe in the water and kind of mutual sharing and a building up slowly of trust. Um, Because it can feel, I think it can be a bit damaging sometimes to meet someone for the first time and just, tell everything and then you can feel a bit overexposed so I think again the kind of baby steps really and I think as well just be persistent because of you know when I think about the closest people in my life um you know those people I did when I met them I did have a quite a strong connection where I kind of knew that probably we were going to be good friends but I guess along the road to meeting those people I met many other people who are acquaintances maybe like 
less good friends but still important part of my life but I think as well it's kind of you know we have to probably you have to kind of keep putting yourself out there gently and that doesn't have to necessarily be in a like going to massive group things or something you know it's it's Mm. finding your own way of doing it you know I definitely prefer one-on-one connections to big group gatherings so it's trying to find what works for you and maybe it's as well initially you might connect with someone through an activity or through a support group or something that's completely removed from mental health but then you make that connection and then a more vulnerable relationship can be built from your initial interest I completely echo that one of the my experience was I have two um two really close friends and we were we'd been friends since primary school and it was a case of obviously our relationship is formed from the age of four or five years old. And so it was then almost like bringing the relationship through to, to as adults, as opposed to just the foundation of our relationship was formed in a shared experience in Amsterdam or Cornwall or something like that. And then being like, okay, well, what does this now look like as, as adults and, what you're saying there is is the exact almost process that I went, it was like to say it's a process, it probably is a bit, maybe not the right phrasing, but um, it was an, it was an intention where I acknowledged that social connection is so, is the most important, one of the most important facets of, of recovery. And there's studies that look at the quality of your relationships is probably one of the biggest predictors of recovery. And so, okay, well, to step into your power and sometimes this uncertainty makes us feel powerless was actually, as you're saying that I can relate to, I went to my friends and said, okay, this is the vulnerability. Like even just, how are you? no, I'm a bit flat today. And just to, to start there. And that's literally how it's, and do they meet me there? And do they, or do they just be like, oh, okay. And just, do they just dismiss me? And then if they dismiss you, that's cool. You just, just formulate new boundaries on your friendship and, um, and then go looking elsewhere for your needs to be met. And then you can just, like I say, dip, dip your toe in a bit further and further and further. And over this process, you, I certainly realize that we're actually so powerful in the way in which we can cultivate our own relationships. And if you can be the example that you want to see, and that is not, like you've said, that's not just verbal diarrhea of like, here's my, here's all of my stuff and dumping it on the driveway, so to speak, but just, just looking at how we meet each other and can we meet each other there? We've got so such an ability to cultivate the, the depth and safety that we deserve and that we want. And, and, but like you say, the anxieties kind of sometimes, um, the anxieties kind of get in the way of that from time to time. The cultivation of support network, do you see a difference in the way in which men are willing to do that versus females and other genders? Yeah, well, I guess, you know, again, so much of my experience is working more with females. So some of, it's just like not knowing sometimes like how men are accessing support networks. I mean, I guess to just kind of know that men are not 
stepping forward so much often for treatment for eating disorders. And, you know, maybe again, there's this kind of stigma, isn't there, about eating disorders affecting kind of females, often kind of white, thin teenagers, mm, you know, yep. and they kind of think, well, that doesn't fit with me. So, um, and I think perhaps within fitness industry as well, sometimes it's quite, it's kind of normalized that you have a slightly disordered relationship with food. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I definitely through what I see on social media and more people doing stuff, I guess, like yourself or, you know, like even like someone like the angry therapist. Too, yeah, you know? that's great. Um, yeah, you know, there's more and more of that, isn't there, available for people to access. But um, but I think it's still quite challenging for men to feel that they can step forward and be more vulnerable. What would be the, um, if there was a male listening to this who was then reflecting on their own practices around food, what kind of red flags would you ask them to just kind of reflect on and sit with and to ask, well, why do I do that? And is that healthy? So, I mean, I guess if you're kind of getting up in the morning and you're feeling anxious about food and exercise for your day ahead, that in itself is quite a red flag. Yeah. You know, if you're thinking about, oh, when am I going to eat? How am I going to get all my exercise in? How much am I going to eat of different macros or whatever, you know, if you're, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with counting your macros or whatever, but I think if it's taking you into a zone where you're very preoccupied and it's taking up a lot of headspace and it's creating a lot of anxiety, then that really is a red flag. Um, I'd also say if you are finding yourself restricting and then you're falling into binging, then you're having to exercise to kind of, you know, burn off those calories. That's not a very healthy thing to be doing. You know, if you're purging, taking laxatives, um, you know, and if you're using like steroids or something again, you know, performance enhancing drugs. I mean, I, I guess, again, it's probably quite nuanced, It's probably not completely black and white. But I guess, yeah. again, it's just really thinking, what's my motivation behind this? you know, how is it affecting my overall mental and physical health? One of the things that we always, like I say, there's nothing wrong with, say, macros, but why? Why do we use macros? Because essentially it's just that form of validation of your own nutrition. And can you then exist in a world where you take it away? And also thinking about the language that we use towards ourselves, are we quite critical? And is our level of self-love dependent on the fact that we go to the gym six times a week and, and things like that. But this, this myth that there is a type of person that gets eating and eat has an eating disorder, traditionally a white young female, but then even we look at maybe males and females who are, sometimes really athletic and obviously there's health consequences to to females um with low body fat and and men um, impact on a whole host of different hormones right i would say that also i did not fit any of those norms like yes i'm i'm a male i'm white but i wasn't particularly lean i was not particularly overweight i probably had a healthy amount of body fat um i was fit enough i was not the strongest or the fittest but i was fit enough and and was just but even still was 
kind of going through these huge hugely damaging patterns of eating but more so just thinking um that it was such a focal point to my life and one of the things that i looked at was the idea of okay this serves me in this moment right now but then what happens if there was to be some form of change what would happen to me if as a simple thing i got injured and I couldn't go to the gym. I broke my leg and I couldn't go to the gym as much. Would I be versatile enough in my behaviors? Could I reduce my food intake? So to speak, not that that's the most healthiest thing to think, but because my energy expenditure had decreased. And the reality of that was it filled me with fear that then this idea of like my immediate thought was a reduction in energy expenditure because I broke my leg was restriction. And that's not how it works. Like now I know that my body just gives me the signal. Like if I don't move as much, I just, my appetite doesn't function as highly. And, and even from a, a practical point of view to, to think I don't have children right now but say i have autonomy over my life at the moment in terms of my diary and being self-employed and, and these kind of things but what happens if work changes and all of a sudden i exercise becomes this thing that's a bit more disjointed or um or i watch my brother who is a, an amazing dad to a very young child and I, I have the same sleep quality that he does and and therefore i can't maybe have the same intensity or, or schedule or whatever to exercise can you adapt and it was one of those things where i reflected on my own versatility and the fear that i had about these prospective things happening that was experience was it particularly kind of like okay i really need to to kind of get get around this because like i say i had a good sense of social belonging I was fit and healthy enough. I was extremely critical of myself. I will just say that. But then as well as that, um, these binging, it, I was like, I came it from a point of like, it, it's okay. Like it wasn't particularly pleasant. And the, obviously the somatic experiences of it with le lethargy and bloating um, and obviously some degree of guilt and shame was certainly there. Um, but there was almost a sense of peace because it was like, I, I still had this identity of, of work being a certain thing and, and, and fit in with a, a certain degree of strength and things like that. Um, and so it's just applying those kind of reflections as well. One of the things that I would also love to ask you about is particularly in working with females as you do and if someone's in a kind of a heterosexual relationship and they have a partner a, a male has a partner who might be struggling one of the this is a very generalized statement but one of the things that we see is men really look to solve they look to how can we you have a problem as someone that i love how can i um I, I you have a problem that i want to solve so how can men best support someone of any gender i suppose their friends but also particularly in a in a heterosexual relationship too 
sure. I mean, I think it is. It's those things of just that bit like being there, listening, not giving advice, you know, being sort of, you know, asking open questions, you know, asking them how they want to be supported. Yeah, you know, not trying to fix really, because I think it's just so tempting, isn't it? As, as human beings, I think it's not just a, a male thing, actually. I think as human beings, we love to fix and to mm. sort of step in. So I think it's just trying to realise that fi- not fixing is the right thing to do and listening, being there, you know, asking those open questions, being supportive and encouraging. That's what really helps. And it will probably feel like you're not doing anything. You know, you might feel a bit like, oh, this doesn't feel good. I want to be fixing. But I just say to you, you know, anyone listening that if you try and fix what it will do is it will make the other person either like really push back against you and there'll be more conflict or they are likely to become more secretive and withdraw and hide their behaviors more. So it's starting to realize as well, actually, that fixing actually doesn't work because of someone themselves has got to be in that place where they're ready and motivated to change. And you just telling them to like, I don't know, stop weighing yourself or don't go to the gym so many times a week. They're not just going to go, oh, okay. (laughs) You know, it's going to be a bit of a process for them to be able to make that decision themselves. Why is it a case of fixing makes people feel more unsafe in in that sense? Well, I guess, you know, as a human being, like, say, Callum, you've probably got something in your life at the moment that you're trying to work on and trying to change. Yep. Yeah, like we probably all have. So I'm just looking out the corner of my eye at my cat. He's like looking at me. (laughs) Um, But if I came in today, you know, and with all the best intentions in the world and said, right, Callum, I know exactly what you need to do. You know, this is what you need to do. When I suffered, suffered with this, this is what helped me. You just need to do A, B and C. I guess, how would you think you'd feel? Mm. (laughs) Um, You know, I think as human beings, of course, we like we want to be supported and encouraged, but we don't like being told what to do. Um, And I think if we are told what to do, it tends to make us either please, you know, so superficially kind of it seems that we're going along with it when we're probably not, or we secretly rebel or we kind of quite openly rebel. Yeah. So it doesn't really create the connection and the change that we're wanting. Yeah. And it can compromise our, I suppose, feeling of belonging and it can compromise our feelings of, of just feeling seen and feeling heard and without and trying to exist without judgment, particularly if you if you love someone and you want them to change, it's really, really difficult but it's absolutely imperative to say that it yeah i'm with you on that this doesn't this can just be how it is at the moment and just kind of support someone through this on their own on their own journey is is it's so so important it's so so important do you ever i suppose this is off this is by the by but do you ever kind of create processes within your own clients which involve a wider network of people whether that's a client and their partner or a client and whatever support network they might be fabricating do you ever do that yeah definitely I mean if we if I'm working with someone who's like a younger person still living at home um, I mean I do work with adults um so 17 years plus but still if you're working with someone that's living at home really good to get the family involved and um 
So you might just do like a few sessions maybe sometimes, but just again, like really reinforcing um, just like the listening skills, the not giving advice. And because I think families were the best one in the world. Like it's really stressful for the family if someone in the family has got an eating disorder and, you know, they want to like step in and fix it. But um, yeah, really easy to like, I use the new Maudsley animal model, actually. If anyone wants to like look up that, but it says like, don't be the rhino who is like always giving advice. Don't be the jellyfish who just like leaks their own emotion over everyone so you can't talk to them. Don't be the ostrich that ignores. Don't be the kangaroo who kind of just picks up the joey and makes them like a little child. You want to be the dolphin swimming alongside, encouraging, listening. But I'd really recommend actually if anyone's listening and they've got a loved one, look up the new Maudsley animal model. It's like a research model created by Eating Disorder Service in London, which is um, really, really effective that's that's the kind of the key point is it in if if you can create a relationship where you are alongside someone as opposed to above them which can often be the case as a kind of a person who maybe doesn't have the problem you can almost see be seen as having more power and that sometimes can be really really isolating really really isolating like that and that's a certainly a projection of my own experiences um where you almost create this this dynamic of a relationship which yeah is is not equal and so that model um of of being the dolphin and being alongside someone is absolutely imperative i um so so grateful for your time i've always finish on three questions can i ask you these three kind of quick fire questions what is i suppose this is fitting with it being the new year and all of that kind of that kind of thing um what's one thing in your life that you're working on at the moment i think having just more fun more joy more more creativity working less (laughs) (laughs) but yeah I think I just want to feel more and more in a empowered creative joyful state really so striving less being more self-compassionate having more fun having more connection that's what I'm working on I think that's amazing the fact that um I mean I've kind of echoed similar sentiments previously and uh but just to say that we uh, it's so important to say that we can support people but then we still have our own stuff to to always work on still and i suppose linking that answer not that that was my intention but linking that answer into eating disorders like i always felt compromise my own sense of value within a friendship or a relationship because how can i support someone when i've got this thing to address whereas actually you like we can both sit here together and be like i'm struggling with this and you're struggling with that but or working on or however you want to to phrase it but we can still support each other and that ability to support another human being never goes away and working with some clients that is something that we can't they they don't see that because their struggles seem so vast they don't see their own value in um the value in that what if you had the ability to time travel back 
would the the person with the the girl with the eating disorder say to you about where you are at now? Yeah, I, I guess she'd be pleased and proud and happy because of I think I knew from very young that I wanted to be doing all of this, but I didn't quite know how I would ever do it. Amazing. So yeah, so yeah, I think she'd be pretty happy. See, see you put yourself out there in the way that you do on social media and then obviously your podcast as well was was that always within you from a kind of a uh, young age or is that something that's kind of developed over time I guess it's developed over time I mean I think you know in terms of the kind of personality I am I am very you know if you do Myers-Briggs <laughs> you know if you're yeah. you know that I'm very high on intuitive and emotional you know things so it, it's very naturally for me like I don't think it's for everybody doing what I do but it's just very naturally something that flows for me so yeah and um, but I, I I guess I've never I'm quite an intuitive person like I didn't really have like these are my set goals mm. I just kind of knew this is kind of the path I need to be going on and then it's evolved and then my final question would be I've heard this on another podcast and so I'm going to ask you what does it mean to be man enough what does it mean mm. oh good question um well I guess I want to just say I would like would reject all the toxic masculinity stuff um yeah I guess it just means just to be very present and authentic and real and um sharing yourself and and I think within that as well, you can still feel strong and empowered and like a man, whatever that might feel, to, you know, mean to you. So, yeah. Amazing. <laughs> well, thank you so, so much for your time today. If anyone wants to reach you, they can reach you at the eating disorder therapist on Instagram. That's correct. Yeah, that's right. And then you have a podcast that, is called the eating disorder therapist podcast and then um if anyone would want to reach out just to inquire about your own services or just general questions of support there would be the best place to reach you sure so i mean dms on instagram are always a good starting point actually like i sometimes do get a bit behind with mm. responding but i do generally get through them even sometimes if it's a week later so i say that's probably the best place Amazing. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, yeah, we'll be right back. All right. Thank you so much. Firstly to Harriet for her amazing wisdom and her time today, but also to you, the listener to make it this far in the podcast is something that I'm truly, truly appreciative of and really, really grateful. It's really difficult to know where to start after a conversation like that because the topic in question is so personal. A, from the point that I have experienced the, I suppose, the damaging nature of an eating disorder on my life, but then continue to help people work through it and can see the impact that even just a poor relationship with food can have on people. So... There's almost with this I, uh, a greater desire to kind of shout from the rooftops about just some of the reflections to take as we move through life that then causes 
our relationship with food, exercise, and I suppose the whole world to shift. And I suppose that is where I would start in the sense that acknowledging that our relationship with anything, be it food, nature, exercise, is like any relationship, not to mention a relationship with a person where it's constantly in flux and constantly evolving and constantly requires investment. If you did not invest in your relationship with your spouse as an example the world would pass it by and you would just get left behind and that's what can happen with our relationship with food my relationship with food is great at this moment in time because it serves me given the current circumstances of my life but as I alluded to in the podcast if there is a day where I don't have the same autonomy over my diary that I might have or I might have greater commitments being that with work or family etc etc then I have to be prepared to adjust my relationship with with food accordingly and sometimes we just get caught up in a certain state believing that our relationship with food should be as it was when we were a child or when we were in our early 20s or when our life circumstances maybe allowed us a bit more freedom and this is something to that we can manage now that we can reflect on now and say okay if my life were to shift do I trust myself to have the versatility within my behaviors that then allow me to to change my my food structure and my relationship with food? And if the answer is no, if you feel some anxiety about that, then just acknowledge it and say, okay, this is a red flag right here and begin to potentially do some work on it. The other thing that I really loved that kind of came up in this conversation was the idea that we as men are conditioned and expected to be in a state of certainty. We are conditioned and expected to have an air of control about us. And particularly working within an eating disorder space, these kind of narratives can promote these more toxic behaviors the idea of we are going to be in control of our emotions and the way in which this manifests itself comes in the form of we try and hold on to these states which exist within us all these states of peak motivation or the states of peak discipline and all the rest of us. Whereas what we actually need to be able to do is to connect with our emotions first and foremost, which we discussed in the podcast. But then we also need to recognize the impermanence of emotions. We need to recognize that this feeling of being motivated or this feeling of discipline or this feeling of certainty is going to pass and and that's okay and that's normal and if we just allow it to pass then it allows us to harness a greater connection with ourselves which means that we actually play what's it actually in front of us so we make decisions based on the current 
resources, as I put it, the current resources that we have, the current levels of energy that we have available, the current levels of time and money and all of these kind of things. Because then we get drawn away from these ideas of perfectionism and having to be a certain way. And we can just be like, okay, this is what I have to deal with right now. This is the time, this is the energy. And how can I make the best out of that situation? And what that then lends itself to is a much more compassion-based approach to then our decision-making. And the root of that is first and foremost, having an understanding and being able to articulate what we actually feel. But then as well as that, being able to connect with our emotions and honor those emotions in a really, really appropriate way. And then the final point is, and probably the most important point is, because it transfers to other areas and other issues that we may face, is that eating disorders thrive in secrecy and shame. They thrive in the darkness. And so we have to be prepared to bring our problems into the light. And I use the word problems because this is not only true for eating disorders. This is true for all elements of our mental health. And so being able to realize the power that we have to cultivate the support network that we desire is something that is so, so, so important. And it is about just starting to create and the word create is so fitting. Like you can literally decide on what and how people can meet your needs and you can go out and create these safe spaces for yourself and it might not be in the people that you think it might be in albeit but then you can understand that your needs are worthy of being met and then once you have this support network you can then begin to verbalize and because once these elements of our lives are verbalized, shame cannot exist anymore. Shame cannot exist when we shine a light on them. And so, as we've said in, in the context of eating disorders, the quality of one's relationships are the biggest predictor of recovery and understanding that we as humans, we thrive on connection. And so, yes, we're talking about eating disorders here, but a lot of the principles that we're discussing just apply to just the general rules of life, if that's such a thing, that we want connection, we want to make sure that our behaviors come from a place of love and to know that we are worthy. And Again, it embodies themes that we've discussed many times before on the podcast so far, themes of surrender and kind of just trusting that we're meant to be as well. So I hope you found this episode of value. It's one that I am so, so keen to get out there. And so if you did enjoy this episode, I'd be so, so grateful if you could continue to spread the word of the Not All Men podcast by sharing it on social media and then 
really the reviews help exponentially so if you have given us a review thus far i'm so 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 grateful it's really helped make the beginning of this podcast more than i thought it would ever be there is a, another episode coming out with an incredible guest next Monday. And so I hope to see you there. And again, just so, so grateful for the support thus far. This has been Not All Men, and today is going to be a good day. 